Let's pray together and ask that the Lord would use this time. Fathers, we look into your word. We ask that you would give us the grace that we need to really see it, not just see it grammatically, not to just be able to read what's on the page, Father, but to be changed and transformed by it. And Lord, if you don't do that work, um, this will not be what it's supposed to be, a, a worshipful time of transformation as you use your word to change us, renew our minds, transform us, conform us to Christ. And Father, as we spend this next few minutes doing that in your word, Lord, we, we ask that it would be noticeable when we leave here that we spent time here with you speaking to us through the pages of the Bible. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are continuing our journey through the book of Numbers. Uh, the book of Numbers is really about a journey, and we, we like to preach through books here at Christian Fellowship Church, and so we are finding ourselves now in chapter 28, and one of the things I love about that is it takes out of the weekly schedule for the pastor, what do I preach on this week? Well, what's on tap is what's next. The difficulty is that it's not always a favorite passage. The fun of it is that we get to see what God is saying through passages that we sometimes would skip over, gloss over. And today we'll see uh, that these chapters here, 28 and 29, overview the idea of sacrifices. Sacrifices. And as we think about sacrifices, we can read through it, and it's kind of strange and kind of awkward. But we get the idea of sacrifice, we just maybe don't get the idea of how it really plays into the Christian life. I mean, if you're into sports, uh, I'll use baseball because that's what I'm most familiar with, but a sacrifice play will be the batter sacrificing himself so someone else can advance on the bases, right? If you play chess, you can sacrifice a piece. It's not an unimportant piece. There's levels of importance between the pieces, but you sacrifice this piece to advance the game on the rest of the board, right? The sacrifice is for something else to happen that is more important than this thing here. And as you read through the Bible, you see this uh, concept of sacrifices all over the place. Let's look at this one chunk and just admit that it's really strange. Okay, well, we're going to read 28, 1 through 8, and just let the strangeness sit with us. And, and maybe we're used to some of these words, but think about reading this for, uh, if you were reading this for the first time. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food, for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, ye shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a quarter of hin of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight like the grain offering of the morning. And like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Imagine that's your paragraph for your morning reading one morning, right? You've got your coffee, you crack this open, you're like, mm-hmm. 
Off to the rest of my day, you know, like what do you do with this stuff? But think about it for a minute. This service, this ceremony, this worship service, okay, where these priests would take two lambs and every morning sacrifice one of those lambs. And every time sun starts to set, sacrifice the second lamb. Go to sleep, wake up in the morning, and grab the next two lambs. Every single day. And this is uh, a process that, if you, I mean, not everybody really likes animals, but we go to petting zoos and we're like, oh, lamb, goat. I mean, they're slaughtering two of these things daily. That was a worshipful ceremony unto the Lord. Now, we can look at this and be like, oh, glad that's in the past, but what is its enduring significance for us, right? These uh, animals that they had to touch, it's awkward for us to read about, think of doing it. Kind of smelly. They're like, man, you're grabbing them, right? And then it's, it's violent, and it's twice daily. And we haven't even gotten to the rest of 28 and 29 with all these other sacrifices. On top of those two daily ones, here are all these other ones. Could you imagine? It's this visceral, physical thing. Uh, they were involved in the smells as that offering was burned up and the smell was going up. They can smell it in the camp twice daily. And then on top of that, all the other times that they did that as well. And we have a very clean experience now. We dress up, we come to church, things are vacuumed, right? But this was a constant reminder that you can't just worship God. There's, there's something that needs to happen here, and that is what sacrifice is for, and that's still important for us today. I want to do something for a minute. I want you to pause Numbers 28. I want to take you back to the beginning. People talk about where did sacrifices come from, or maybe Israel adopted it from some other nation. Uh, where did we get the concept of sacrifices from? I want to take you to the beginning really quickly. Uh, so in just a moment, I'm going to take you to Genesis 3. You can turn there now, put your finger in Numbers Genesis, just a couple books back, right? Go to the first book of the Bible. You remember how the Bible starts? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. What do you create? Order and life. Life began with God. And to understand sacrifice, here's what you need to understand. If you write something down, here's what you need to understand. Sacrifices in the Bible communicated the need for a death as a result of rebelling against life. Death needs to happen because you rebelled against the source of life. Where does life come from? God created life. He is life. God breathed life into man and then warned man that if you rebel against me, I'm life. I'm the breather of life. If you rebel against me, what do you get? If you cut yourself off from the source of life, what do you get? Death. So God is not capriciously vindictive. He's not up there like, you know what? I'm just really ticked off today. Lightning bolt. That, that's not what's happening here. If you were somehow able to manage jamming a fork into an outlet, the very difficult consequences <laughs> that you would experience, we should put a ticker tape on the video, do not do this, right? Do not do that. Why? Well, whatever shock you'd receive, if you survived, you wouldn't then blame the outlet. You wouldn't be like, stupid electricity, what a jerk. Electricity is so dumb. No, you appreciate electricity for what it gives you. You were dumb for sticking the fork in the outlet. 
with God. Some people think, you know, why is he so vindictive? He demands death. He demands death. He is life. And when we cut ourselves off from him, the result of that is death. I'm not saying God is not angry in that. He is angry. But it's not like he just randomly choosing. How about in his book of punishments? How about death? Yeah, that's a good one. It has to be death because he's life. And so the idea of sacrifice doesn't make any sense unless you understand that. Sacrifices communicated the need for death as a result of rebelling against the source of life. Of course, when Adam and Eve rebelled, they didn't die physically right away. They got to continue fellowship with God, but their guilt and their shame were expressed in their uncoveredness. You remember that? They're like, oh, we're uncovered. So they try to cover themselves. What do they grab? Some fig leaves, and they weave some fig leaves together, and their covering was insufficient so God covered them sufficiently. Remember that? God used skins to cover them because the fig leaves were insufficient covering. Where do you get the skins from? Some animal, right? Or some animals? There's your first sacrifice. The first sacrifice is on the heels of rebellion because in order for them to continue to draw breath, something else that was drawing breath that didn't deserve death, had to take the death for them, and that death covered them the way fig leaves can't. I mean, you can think of that in a physical, literal sense. Skins are a better actual covering than leaves. Leaves don't really cover very well. But God used that to communicate, you can't cover yourselves. I know how to cover you. And the only way to get that covering is sacrifice. That is still true today. We cannot enjoy fellowship with God outside of sacrifice. So here's what we need to understand. It's the concept of substitution. The idea is that one life undeserving of death for one death undeserving of life. Right? There's the switch. One life that does not deserve death replaces or substitutes one death, so to speak, that is undeserving of life. That's how it worked from the first pages of the Bible. As we get into numbers, God is regulating it, making it into a system. He's making it official. He's telling them how to do it, when to do it, how often to do it, which days to do it, who's supposed to do it. He's regulating but not inventing. This happened in the early pages of Genesis because we cannot have fellowship with God outside of it. We cannot have fellowship outside of sacrifice. We'll put this on the screen really quickly, John 1.29, because I just want to cut to the chase that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of sacrifice. And the reason why it's still relevant today, you remember when John the baptizer sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is Jesus a lamb? Because he's so gentle and cute? No. <laughs> Jesus is a lamb because he fulfills what we just read in Numbers 28. He fulfills what we see in the early pages of Genesis. He is the sacrifice that provides the perfect covering, the perfect covering for us as we rebelled against him. So look at Genesis 3 really quickly. I'm going to pop down a couple verses really quickly, and then we're going to get back to numbers. We're not usually all over the place like this, but just bear with me a second. I think this is important so that when you read Numbers 28 with your cup of coffee in the morning, you don't skip it and you don't miss its value. Genesis chapter 3, we see the fig leaf thing in verse 7, right? 
Verse 7, cover themselves with fig leaves. Verses 8 through 19, they, they've recognized their nakedness. They're hiding. God comes, finds them, quote-unquote. It's not like he doesn't actually know where they are. And he lays out the curses for the man, for the woman, of course, for the serpent. And he embeds the promise in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. There's the promise that he's going to bring a solution. The sin has caused problems. Now there's thorns. Now it's difficult to till the soil. Now childbirth is going to be uh, so much more painful. But here's this promise of a seed who will come and destroy the destroyer. The seed who will come and crush the head of the serpent and the deceiver. But if you look at verse 20, when do we get Eve's name? Or the explanation of Eve's name. It's not until we got all of that. The fig, leaves are, or the fig leaves are there. The nakedness is there. The hiding is there. The curses are there. The big problem is there. Now Eve is the solution. How is Eve the solution? Because she provides life where there's death. And in fact, her name sounds like life giver. So Eve would be the one that Paul refers to in 1 Timothy 2. He said, remember, Eve was deceived. And just when you think Paul is like a, a woman hater, you know, he's like, but remember, she's also the one through whom salvation will come through childbearing. I think that's the right way to read 1 Timothy 2. So here's the point. She delivers into the world the deliverer of the world. That's why she's life giver, Eve. So here's what's happening in Genesis. They rebelled against God. God is life. They get death. How are they going to get life? He sacrifices an animal and covers them in skins as a picture of here's how it's done, but that doesn't actually work, does it? This is a picture. These animal skins you're wearing, this covering you're wearing is a picture of the seed who is eventually going to come, and Eve is going to deliver that source of life to cover you effectively, totally, completely. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the fix. And so in verse 21, God makes the better garments to clothe them better, to cover them better. After he's given them the promise in 3.15, after he's promised that Eve is going to be the deliverer of this life, in verse 20, and then 21 shows the effectiveness of God's way of covering. So to better understand that, we can lean into fellowship with God. When we understand what sacrifices mean, we can read the Old Testament and go, okay, I think I see how this is helping me. And here's how. It points you to Christ. So I just want to point out a few observations as briefly as I can. It looks like long chapters. We're not going to read through every verse, okay? Uh, but I'm not opposed to that. You can go online and check out a couple weeks ago where we did a lot of reading. But Numbers 28 and 29, I want to give you some lenses to see how this helps you understand what Christ provides believers. The list of sacrifices in Numbers 28 and 29 benefit us. They should be highlighted as much as any other portion of the Bible because they point us to Christ's work on the cross in two important ways. The first way that the sacrifice list in Numbers 28 and 29 point us to Christ's work on our behalf. The first way is that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is complete. It is not deficient in any way. It's not lacking in any way. Christ didn't get us partway there, and then we've got to finish the rest of it. We can trust wholly in Christ's sacrifice because Christ's sacrifice is totally pleasing to God. You saw it a few times when we read verses 1 through 8, that concept of fire and the burnt offering. 
uh, and the times that it repeats, that it, that produces an aroma that is pleasing to God. Now you can take that, like God literally loves the smell of burnt flesh and burnt flour and burnt oil. Or you can go, what does that mean that that pleases God? Well, the sacrifice pleases God. The fact that the sacrifice got wholly burnt up, the sacrifice happened, pleases God. Why does that please God? It's an aroma pleasing to Him. Just look at it really quickly. In that chunk we read, it's in verse 2, it's in verse 3, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 8. Then you see it again in verse 13, 19, 24, 27, aroma pleasing to God. You get to chapter 29, it's in verse 2, 6, 8, 13, 36. So when you read through lists, highlight things that are repeated over and over and over. It's not repeated because they didn't know what else to say. It's repeated because it's pointing to something. The sacrifice pleases God. And some of us are stuck in this thing like we look at our last week, we look at our calendar, like our last month, our last year, our whole lives, am I pleasing to God? That's the wrong question. What pleases God ultimately? Uh, God is displeased when we sin. He's grieved when we sin. That's true. He is pleased when we do good things. But we're asking, is God, when God looks at me, is He pleased? Is He pleased? In Numbers 28 and 29, we see there's a way to please God. And that way is not what they did outside of camp. How faithfully they kept the Ten Commandments, although they needed to. What pleases God? The effective sacrifice that covers our sin, that pleases God. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 6, it is impossible to please God without faith. What do you have without faith? All you have is your stuff, your works. Your do's and don'ts, did, didn't do, should have, could have, would have. That's all we have outside of faith. But what do we place our faith in? We place our faith in the effective sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is the entire singular point of the book of Hebrews. So we shouldn't be asking just, is God pleased with me? The question really ultimately is, is God pleased toward me? And he can be pleased toward us even if he's not pleased with my performance. He's pleased with Christ's performance on my behalf. I didn't put this on the screen, but just listen. Ephesians 5.2. Ephesians 5.2. Paul tells the Ephesians, walk in love. Listen, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then listen to the analogy he uses for how Christ gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ is the fragrant offering when our lives stink. And God doesn't have a mixture of smells. One fragrance replaces the stench. It's not a mixture. It's a substitution. That's why that principle is important. We don't come to God with a mixed bag. He looks at Christ in us. So when you're in Christ, when you're in Christ, God is pleased toward you, even if He's not pleased with you. And what I mean by that is our performance, which is always spotty, at our best. I want you to leave here encouraged. I don't want to leave you leaving here wondering, is God pleased toward me? If you've accepted Christ, if you're in Christ, He's pleased toward you because of that sacrifice. This is why it's so repeated. You do the sacrifice, God is pleased. The sacrifice there offers a way to be sure that God is pleased. And it's a total thing. It's complete. It's totally pleasing. Why? Because it's perfect. Here's another repetition. 
The idea that these animals that were presented were without defect or without blemish, depending on your translation. You see these different offerings. They're offering all these number of animals, and they had to be without blemish, no defect. They had to be perfect. You see it in the daily offering that we just read in verse 3. The Sabbath offering, you see it in verse 9. The monthly offering, you see it in verse 11, specifying all the animals without blemish. At the Passover, all the animals, verse 9, all the animals without defect. The Feast of Weeks, it's kind of long, but finally you get to it at the end in verse 31. Hey, don't forget, be sure the animals are without defect. The Feast of Trumpets, okay, cool. We get to blow trumpets now. It's great. We can take a break from the animals. No, no, no. Blow trumpets, and then on top of blowing the trumpets, take all these animals and make sure all of them are sacrificed and make sure all of them are without blemish or defect. And we see that in chapter 29, verse 2. At the Day of Atonement, you see it in verse 8. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, lots of animals, lots of animals brought all without defect, and it says it in verse 13, 17, 20, 23, 26, 29, 32, 36. Our Bibles would be shorter without a lot of these repetitions. Why is it there? Because the animal without defect covers your defects. Hopefully none of us in here thinks we are without defect. I think we all would recognize that we are full of holes And we can never go back in time and reverse the things that we've done that we wish we didn't do. We have defects. God knows that. How can we have fellowship with a defectless God, a perfect, blemishless God? Well, we need a perfect covering. Christ is that perfect covering, meaning the pure life that stands in for a stained life means that it's a perfect stand-in. You don't have leftover to finish. You don't have leftover to do. And you don't need a time machine to go back and fix. Christ has done it. I don't know if you realize the truth that we will always remember our failures. That's hard to grapple with. You know how I know that? Because you see these pictures, these scenes of heaven in the book of Revelation, and they're worshiping Him as the slain Lamb. They get crowns and they throw the crowns down. (laughs) You're a crown. You did it. I don't deserve it. How do they know that? How do they remember that? Slain lamb. Why is he a lamb? What was the lamb thing? I don't know. I don't remember. I got my mind wiped. Men in black. Beep. I don't remember anything. But we're just worshiping him and we call him the lamb. I don't know. Of course they know. The beautiful thing about heaven is not a memory wipe. The beautiful thing about heaven is that even with the memories, you don't wrestle with the guilt. And you can taste that now, that Christ has covered the guilt, that Christ's sacrifice is perfect, and what's pleasing to God is Christ's sacrifice on my behalf, and I don't have to doubt it. The second thing we need to realize, the first thing is that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is complete. We see that iterated with the repetition of the defect, uh, the, the blemishless animals. We see that repeated with the aroma that goes to God constantly saying it's pleasing, it's pleasing, it's pleasing to God. So it's complete, it's total. We also recognize that that sacrifice, though it's complete, does not mean that uh, we don't do anything at all. Christ's sacrifice, as complete as it is, uh, does not mean that, eh, Christ has done it, that means we don't really have anything to do or anything 
to worry about. The sacrifices that we read about here remind us that Christ's sacrifice demands our sacrifice. Now, one thing, this is easy to miss. It's right there. This is easy to miss how much work it took to do this stuff in chapters 28 and 29. It was so much. Uh, It was costly and weighty. Check out this slide. I just broke this down for you. I mean, it's just a breakdown of what you see in the Bible there already. But here are the offerings, okay? And the the first one is the daily offerings. Two lambs, one in the morning, one at twilight. That's the first eight verses we read that. Then you have the Sabbath offerings. On top of those daily ones, on the Sabbath day, two more. So that's four on the Sabbath day. Then when you get to Passover, chapter 28, 16 to 25, that's the 14th day, the first month. On top of everything else, two bulls. Those are big. Two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs. Next slide. As we push through uh, the, uh, chapter 28, you get to the Feast of Weeks. And on the first day of first fruits, that harvest, two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs. Now let's throw in a, one male goat for atonement. That's on top of the dailies. You get to chapter 29, the Feast of Trumpets. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs, plus the male goat for atonement. Verses 7 through 11, the Day of Atonement. On the 10th day of the 7th month, on top of the other ones, you've got to do one bull, one ram, uh, seven male lambs, plus the male goat for atonement. Okay, next slide. And then you get to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now look at this. This is an eight-day feast. On the 15th day of the 7th month, it'll start. On day one, 13 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, plus a male goat. Go to sleep. Next day, grab 12 bulls. If you see it as a countdown, two rams, 14 male lambs, one male goat, go to sleep. Next day, grab 11 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one male goat. Day four goes to 10 bulls, day five, nine bulls, day six, eight bulls, day seven, seven bulls. And then finally on the last day, the eighth day, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs, plus one male goat. Let's look at the total. I feel like a game show host or something up here. Let's put the total on the board. Next slide. So the total each year, I don't know if I could probably, I don't know if I could, you could see that back there, but total each year, 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs. That, we haven't even covered the one ton of flour and the 1,000 bottles of oil and wine offered to God. We're like, can you give your 10%? <laughs> this was costly. This was weighty. It's not like swat 1,000 gnats, stomp on 500 ants. Costly, valuable animals that you'd use for meat, for milk, for agricultural life. Slaughtering them. You're not allowed to, can we kill it, but then can we eat it? No, no, no. Burn the whole thing, and the whole thing burning is what's a pleasing aroma to me. That is a sacrifice. You don't get to also double dip. <laughs> And so if you just slow down and read through it and just force yourself to push through these portions of Scripture and look at the repetition and just imagining your life, imagine living in a camp, you're in the wilderness, you don't have that many animals, you don't have that much, you're not in the land of milk and honey yet. These are precious, valuable things that you have and you're killing them. For what? The smoke goes up, they don't see God. They're trusting that this is what puts us in fellowship with God, and God will take care of the rest. We don't have to doubt it because the sacrifice is effective, but the fact that the sacrifice is effective doesn't mean we just kind of sit there. He brought them into it. 
The title of the sermon is He Sacrifices, not We Sacrifice. Why? Because He's the one that sacrificed. John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave. Not we gave. He gave. But He gave in order so that we can give. He gave in order that we can respond to it with action. So God provides this sacrificial system and invites them into it by making them take the animals and making them haul the animals up, raise the animals, feed them, bring them to the point, check them out. I don't know who the inspectors were to check out, oh, this one has a blemish, this one doesn't have a blemish. You better get that right, brother. <laughs> a blemish goes through our vetting process and we could be in trouble. A lot of work went into this to communicate the, the weightiness and the costliness of it. And the enduring principle there, brothers and sisters, is when we don't dwell on the costliness and the weightiness, the gravity of Christ's sacrifice for us, we'll live like we don't dwell on it. We won't have that deep sense of gratitude that we should have when we don't count and weigh that cost. And so we understand that Christ's sacrifice produces in us a gratitude that motivates us to respond. We can just think about the daily offerings alone without that slide. Just the daily offerings, one in the morning, one in twilight, one in the morning, one in twilight. It's constant, it's persistent, and thanks be to God. Like the book of Hebrews explains to us, Christ's sacrifice is constant and persistent, but it's one time for all, effective. It doesn't have to repeat it's complete and perfect. But that complete and perfect sacrifice invites us in. Last verse, and we're going to close with this. Romans 12.1, you know it well. Paul writes, he's switching gears. He laid out all this doctrine for them in verses, uh, chapters 1 through 11. Now he's going to switch about, now how, here's how you live and respond to the, to the doctrines that we saw. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. All these mercies he's provided for us. How do we respond to these mercies? to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's what Paul doesn't mean. I need you guys to go out there and earn it. If you sacrifice hard enough in your life, then maybe God will be pleased. No, no, no. In view of God's mercies, God has provided you something already. He's pleased. He's pleased with the aroma of Christ. But if you're in Christ, you live a certain way. You live a certain way. You live out that daily sacrifice not on top of an altar, not by cutting yourself, but by going and doing what he's asked us to do. And we don't do it to earn uh, God's pleasure. We do it because God's pleasure is secure. Every other religion has it the other way, don't they? They work and they sacrifice and they do things to try to get the pleasure from God. We work the opposite way. Having the pleasure secured in Christ, we operate and do and serve and love one another. It's because of the sacrifice that we live. Not sit back and get lazy. Well, Christ did it. I don't have to do anything. It's the opposite. Christ did it, and he motivates me, empowers me to live a Christian life. What a freedom, right? As we think about freedom today, what a freedom to live a life uh, where we can do things for the Lord because he's done something for us, not the other way around. Uh, I lament brothers and sisters who are trapped in sort of a, a treadmill of guilt where they just can't shake uh, the guiltiness of whatever their failures are. and We all have them. We need to bring those to the cross. When you understand the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, then you can understand forgiveness. 
And those of us who have a hard time forgiving someone else in our lives, same solution. You go back to the cross, understand what really happened on the cross. Christ sacrificed for us this huge debt that was unpayable and was forgiven for us, and then we can grant that to other people. We operate from the cross, not toward it to earn it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for this tremendous sacrifice that reminds us about uh, not only our guilty sins, our stains, but also reminds us how you have done the work to cover us. And it's an effective covering. It's a perfect covering. We don't want to take that lightly. We don't want to take it flippantly. We want to worship you out of it. We want to serve you out of it. And so, Father, as we close in this song, would you allow our hearts to rise up to the truths that we just learned? And may our lives be different as a result. Father, receive this song as an offering of praise. And may it come from our hearts as well as our lips. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll